You can turn with me to Deuteronomy 5. We're continuing on in our study of the Ten Commandments today. We've been working through them over the summer here at Emmaus Road. And today we come to the Sixth Commandment, where we start to kind of just rifle through some of these short prohibitions. So hear God's word. We're going to jump right in. You shall not murder. It's probably the shortest sermon text I'll ever read. Um, it's only two words in Hebrew and one letter less than thou shalt not steal, which I'll get in a couple weeks. It's also probably the text that more people in the world agree with than any other. Whether you're a Christian or not, you probably think that we shouldn't murder one another. It's not good. Right? So as our point of application, let me ask you, have you murdered another person? Would you like for me to call the police so you can confess? No one. Okay, we're good. Let's close in prayer like the Pharisee and thank God that we're not like those murderers out there. Just kidding, right? But that's often how we look at it when we come to this command, isn't it? At least I haven't done that. Here's one that I've finally kept. Sure, I'm batting one for six, but I'm on the scoreboard now. See, I'm not as bad as some of the people out there. But is it true? Have we kept the command? Can we check the box next to it? If you've been paying attention so far in our service, you probably already know the answer. No. When I was growing up, we had chores around the house that we had to do every week. During the week, there'd be some things like Tuesday and Friday nights were my nights to clean the kitchen. We'd rotate every week who had to gather all the trash and then take it out. But Saturdays, those were cleaning days. We'd all have different assigned things. Might be a bathroom, then you might have to vacuum the living room, and it would rotate through all these. Right? And bathrooms are the worst because, well, they're bathrooms. And there were a bunch of young boys living there. If you have it at your house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But whenever we'd finish the chore, we'd have to tell our mom and she'd come and inspect the work. And if we didn't pass, we'd have to redo it all. And that would happen sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it would be because we really had just missed something. Sometimes we'd cut some corners and pray she didn't look there, think it might pass muster, thinking we could get away without doing all the work. I think we're the same way with this command. Just like the bathroom might look pretty clean on a cursory glance, most of us haven't actually killed someone, but when my mom will open the drawer, she'll run her finger along the windowsill, she'll look at the side of the toilet that's like hidden up against the wall in the corner. You know, she looks there and she sees pee and grime and dust and other hidden things. When we look at our hearts, when we look at our thoughts, what proceed into other actions, we may not be actively, physically killing someone, but we often murder them in our hearts, and we fail to live in ways that preserve and promote life. So let's do that inspection this morning. Let's see if the bathroom's really clean, as it were. 
I'm just going to give you the big idea right up front here. We are not to murder, but to preserve life because God is the giver of life and we are made in his image. We are not to murder, but to preserve life because God is the giver of life and we are made in his image. So let's just walk through those four things, two aspects of the command and then two aspects of the motivation. So first, we're not to murder. On the surface, it seems pretty clear. How are we to understand it? It's talking about humans um, killing people. and It's lawful kill, unlawful killing of people. So just kill, if you had the King James, probably a little too broad. Um, but murder can be a little narrow, too, because it can fall under things like what we would call manslaughter, voluntary or even involuntary, whether it's done through negligence, through action, or failing to act. Unlawful killing is probably the best way to put it. And unlawful in the sense of God's law, not necessarily the laws of the lands, as unfortunately we sometimes contradict those. And this is where we think we're good, like we haven't done that, right? That's the, that's the bar. It's low. It's the floor of the law, the bare minimum. Most of us can keep that. But Dan talked about the rule of categories last week, where honor your father and mother also includes others in authority over you. Like that, do not murder also includes other forms of violence, from fistfights to domestic abuse to neglect. All of these in that category that tend toward death. And it also goes deeper. It's not just these external actions, what Phil Reichen calls the inside-outside rule. They demand inward integrity as, as well as outward compliance. This is what we think of when we think of Jesus, right? When he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These things that lead to the unlawful taking of life or other forms of violence are included. It's not just the act, but what's going on in our hearts that lead to this that emulate it. John puts it another way in 1 John. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Yikes, right? I mean, if we're honest, when we consider the attitudes of our hearts toward others, none of us can check the box on this commandment because the seeds are there. It's but by the grace of God that we don't go farther. If we're honest about our condition, we don't deny this propensity toward violence. I mean, you think about the phrases we use, like, if looks could kill. You know, like, what's behind that? They wish you weren't there. Kind of what Dan talked about for our confession of sin. We might not say they're dead to me as much, but how often do we cut people out of our lives? That's the popular one now, right? Cut out the toxic people. 
I see everywhere. Praise God that he didn't cut out the toxic people in his life. Because I'd be gone. What would you call that if not a heart for murder? Right? We think this is the easy one to keep. Just don't kill someone. But if we're honest, it's one of the hardest. These flashes of anger, these flashes of bitterness that we have towards others. They break this command as well. So it's not as simple as did I physically kill someone. It includes all these forms of unjust physical violence as well as our thoughts, our feelings, and our words that tend in that direction. When we consider that, it just slides out of reach. Right? In your marriage, God forbid there be physical abuse. Some of you may be going through that. That obviously breaks this. But even for those of us who would say, I've never laid a hand on them. Do you whip them with your words? Do you say things to hurt people? You get that little dig in? I'm good at the backhanded compliment. God is sanctifying me, but it still comes out from time to time. It's there. Do we ever take pleasure or think that serves them right? When someone suffers something that we don't like. It's this form of hatred against them in our own hearts. Is there someone that you would love to see pay? We hold on to these things. All of these are forms of murder that leave us guilty. We're not to murder, even in our minds and hearts. But it goes beyond that as well. We're also to preserve life. So we get the negative prohibition. We'll get this the next few weeks. But a command of the contrary is also included, that we have a duty to do the opposite. So the law in the Bible, it doesn't function the same way that our laws do. So this goes again kind of the rule of categories. We restrict our laws to only apply to the very specific thing that we're talking about, right? We love loopholes. We love to get away with it. It's fine. I didn't do it. If it doesn't mention this exact thing, I'm good. Instead, the law in the Bible is understood to touch on every area of our lives. And it's our responsibility not to figure out how we can avoid it or how we can get by and do an end-around run, but instead to consider how the law would apply in a given situation. So think about kids. They're poking each other, touching each other, you know. You say, stop touching them. So what does the kid do? Gets in their face. Not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Right? (laughs) They know. They do it. We do it. It's the loophole. Even though that's not what we meant. So we have to change it and say, go away from them. Leave them alone. But the, the way we're to think of God's law would say the command already applies. That the heart of the law is already present there. And we need to look at how it fits. 
So even if we look at some of these civil laws in Israel, what we'll see is that these laws are often more like case laws for the types of ways that the Ten Commandments would be applied rather than their own law. So if we look at, as we look at the prohibition, do not murder, it also means that we preserve life. We protect and promote it as we're able. Probably the clearest example of this is Deuteronomy 22.8. It says if you're building a new house, you have to put a parapet on the roof so that no one might fall off and you be held guilty. So you have to protect the life. They would hang out on their roofs. So you don't have to do it on your roof. But uh, they would hang out on their roofs. They have to put up a little, little wall so kids aren't crawling and falling off the edge. And as much of a pain as building codes can be, that's how we get there. It's actually an application of this command. That we have to put rails up on balconies and on staircases to protect life. That we can't have exposed wiring so that people don't accidentally touch it and get electrocuted to preserve life. We have to have a fence around an in-ground swimming pool so that a kid doesn't come, stumble, fall in, and drown. It's to preserve life. Those are actually applications of the command, do not murder. We also see this idea of promoting life throughout the New Testament, that we're told to provide for the needs of others that they might live. In Luke 3, John tells the crowd that whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise, so on and so forth. Protecting and preserving the lives of others, especially the vulnerable. This is why we've seen throughout church history that Christians have been the main source of charity in the world, of opening orphanages to babies who are left out to die, of the hospital we, system we have to care for the sick and preserve their lives, of feeding the poor that they might not starve. The church has led the way in these things. Are there people around you that need your help? It's easy for us to avoid this positive aspect. People that are living in front of us, that we're on the sidelines, that we don't want to step in because it'll cost us. But that we're actually commanded to do so. where we need to step in to help preserve their lives. And in light of the cultural moment right now, we see Christians rightfully standing up for the life of babies in the womb. And it's right that we do so. We're to preserve and promote life, especially the vulnerable, so we can celebrate the Dobbs decision while also recognizing that we're commanded to preserve and promote the lives of mothers that are suffering of babies who are going to be in need. That we have to be pro-life from womb to tomb, as they say. That's what comes out of this command. We need to be consistent in that. And just as we're going through this as a nation right now, I also just want to point out the posture that this sixth command requires of us. One that the church has often failed pretty badly at. If your attitude and the way you think about abortion providers or abortion advocates or those who have had or are considering abortions, if, you're, if the words you say are typed tend toward hate and death, then you're breaking the very commandment that you're condemning them for. 
We have to be consistent in this. You might be here this morning and think about the church as a bunch of hypocrites. That it's real rich, me getting up here talking about murder, coming from a church who's brought about the Crusades, who's killed people in the name of religion. You're not all wrong. But you're not all right either. Even as I've been talking, I've been pointing out the ways that I myself and all of you fail to live up to what we profess, fail to live up to what we're called to. But at the same time, I don't think it's fair or accurate to say that the church has not been a source of good for the world. Warts and all. If you're thinking like that, I would encourage you, a book I just finished, encourage you to read John Dixon's Bullies and Saints. He's brutally honest about the many failures of Christians, the many failures of the church, things that we need to own up to things that we shouldn't justify, that we can acknowledge. But he also doesn't shy away from the ways the church has promoted and preserved life in ways that no other worldview has. I'd be happy to talk with you guys about that. Read the book. It'd be fun. Fun conversation. But more than the witness of the ch- church, I'd encourage you to actually consider our God. <laughs> the reason we strive toward life. If you think of it like this, if I, uh, I took piano lessons from like 5 to 10, so I'm proficient. Um, but if I went over there and played a piece of Mozart, you would hate it. But you wouldn't walk away condemning Mozart for my performance of what he has written. In the same way, I'd ask you to consider that. That we are failures as Christians living up to what God calls us to. Yet he is good. And what he calls us to is right. So with that, let's turn toward our motivation for why we don't murder. But instead preserve life. As I mentioned before, this is the command people agree with. right? It just makes sense. If you go around killing people, society doesn't function very well. Nothing lasts. People are dead. But if we're really going to understand what God is commanding of us, if the broader applications of what I've just talked about are going to apply, then there needs to be deeper motivation and reasons simply than the functioning of society. So why are we not to murder but to preserve life? First, because God is the giver of life. A helpful thing to consider as we look at all of God's commandments is that they reflect his character, that they flow out of it. Nothing God does is arbitrary. Nothing he commands is just for fun. They flow out of his goodness. They flow out of who he is. Though, admittedly, there are times when we don't understand. But it always reflects who he is. The sixth commandment is about life. Don't take it away. Preserve it. Why? Because God is the giver of life. We see this from the very beginning. Genesis 2, God forms man from the dust and breathes life into him. 
He becomes a living creature. We have Paul preaching in Acts 17. It says, God who made the world and everything in it doesn't need anything from us. He's the one that gives, him, gives all, life to all mankind. God gives life to all. Who are we to take it? Death wasn't ever supposed to happen. We were never meant to die. Death is an intruder due to sin. But even as death enters our world because of sin, God provides a way for us to still have life for all of eternity. Even in the face of death, he says, I will give you life. He conquers death. He does that through his son, Jesus, who died in the place of all who trust in him, who died and rose again so that we might live. I mean, even Jesus tells us in John that he came so that anyone who enters by him, who believes in him, may have life and have it abundantly. It's this theme just running throughout life. Paul tells us that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can know that we will live as well. And when he returns, death itself will be destroyed, that there will be no more death. God's purpose from the beginning has been to give life to his people. And even as death has entered because of sin, God has redeemed us from sin and death to give us life again. It says he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So how could we go on taking or diminishing the lives of others? God is the giver of life. We're also made in his image. This means something for us as image bearers as well as for those with whom we're interacting. Right? For us, part of what it means is that we're to image God, that we're to look like him, that we're to reflect him into the world. That's what sanctification is, looking more like Jesus. As Westminster would say, being renewed in the whole man after the image of God so that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. It's looking more like Jesus. You might say, you don't know what people have done to me. You don't know what I've been through, what I've experienced. If you had, you would hate people too. You would be glad if they were dead. And the truth is, you might be right. I might. But more importantly than what I know, so Jesus knows. And he knows what it's like. And that's not how he responded. As he's on the cross, dying to give us life, he looks on those that are they're murdering him right then the one who never sinned, the one who lived perfectly. As they're murdering him, he cries out and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If we're to image Christ in the world, our lives need to look like his. One that doesn't kill, but is willing to be killed for others. One that gives of ourselves 
for others. God is the giver of life, and we are made in his image. We are made to reflect him, extending life to others, promoting life, preserving life. But not only are you made in the image of God, but so is every other person with whom you interact. Those with whom you get angry, those you hate, those you ignore who need your help. They're also made in the image of God. Marred as that image may be, it's still there. It's also the reasoning God gives for the death penalty for someone who murders someone else in Genesis 9. He says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Essentially saying, to murder another person is to murder what is most like God. It's almost like attacking God himself. How can we say we love God when we hate those who are made in his image? You see the dissonance there? The question is, do we recognize the image of God in others? Or do we make them less than they truly are? That's where all this happens, isn't it? Where we dehumanize people. We make them something other. Even as I joke, we're not like those who have murdered. What are we doing? We're saying they're less than. That's what we do. That's what I do in my own heart is seeing people come up with these reasons why I'm better than them, why they're less than me, why it's okay for me to justify the way I feel toward them, why they deserve it. But what I'm not doing is recognizing who they really are. They're made in God's image, deserving of dignity and respect. Do we recognize the image of God in others when we treat them so poorly? So James says when he's talking about our speech and he's pointing out our hypocrisy, as we bless God with one breath and with the next we curse those who are made in his image. He goes on, this ought not be so. It doesn't make any sense. Do you see the image of God in those you struggle to love? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Frame it positively. Instead of those you hate, those you don't love. That's what it is, right? The second tablet of the law is loving neighbor. Those you don't want to see succeed. Those you don't want the best for. Those you hope you don't run into. Pray that God would help you to see it. That you would know their true humanity. That you would not dehumanize them, but honor them. We're not to murder, but to preserve life because God is the giver of life and we are made in his image. But as we've seen, if we're honest, we all fail to keep the sixth commandment. We're all murderers at heart. 
whether we have physically killed someone or not. So where does this leave us? I hope it doesn't leave us, but it leads us to Jesus. Let it bring us to him, the one who committed no sin, who suffered but did not threaten, who completely entrusted himself to God who judges justly, the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we can be healed. Go to him that you might be healed, that you might know life. And not only will he give it, but he will give you his own spirit to strengthen you, to change you, to empower you to bit by bit die to yourself so that you aren't always looking down on others, that we can actually love them, that we can give of ourselves for them, that we can promote their lives. To enable you more and more to live as he did, giving life to others instead of taking it away. To see his image in others as he saw in us.